You're listening to Colored Commentary, a Threaded podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Threaded and the ways to support and donate to this organization, check out wearethreaded.org. Now, here's the show. All right, how you doing, Colored Commentary? Colorful conversations by colorful people about Christianity, culture, and race. I'm your host, Marcus Lloyd, and with me is Antoine Malone. What's happening over there, Antoine? Yo, yo, what's up, everybody? How are you today? Hope you guys are having a wonderful day. If you're listening to us, as you're just getting up and on your way to work, mm, then I'll going to a, work. Yeah, have a good day, or or what? Your day Maybe. is done, and you're going home for some dinner. Yeah, sitting around on the Hope weekend. Good for you. You know what I mean? Maybe you're out fishing, doing something, hanging out. Maybe, Maybe you're Maybe watching. Fishing, catching, catching some bass. <laughs> some large mouth bass. You know, out my, there. my my family they're big about they're big about fishing. Really, like, I'm not. No. I, have, I don't. I'm not I think everybody alive. who listens to the show knows yeah, like, that you yeah, are not every, an outside this show person. Is a chronicle of all the things I don't do. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, man. And my cousins, they have competitions. Yeah. Like it's a, it is a, it is a big, it's a big thing anyway. So no, look, got me thinking about some catfish today. I think I might have to go down the street. Wait, wait go down into the, to the store and pick up some. <laughs> the the store. Store. Like I, said, I eat fish, to. I don't catch it. I was going to say, I was going to say, no, cat, look, fishing is big. Like, you know, I grew up in Texas and, and we, fishing was huge. And actually it was all the women in my family who were the fisher people, if you will. So it was more like fisher women. And you would oh, wow. go out. I remember okay. going out and, and fishing with my uh, grandmother several times, and she would heckle you while you were fishing because she's oh. over on the side. Yeah, we'd go out to, like, the reservoir, and she'd be fishing, and she'd just be pulling <laughs> fish out, right? And I'm over there with my pole, pull, nothing, just sitting. You know, and she nothing. goes, hmm, what's going on over there, Marcus? And I go, it's the place where I'm at, Grandma. Yes, this is, Grandma, this is, this is not a good spot. I need your spot. That's the problem. Hey. She goes, you can switch with me if you want to. And we'd switch, and she'd go to my spot, and she'd just start pulling that, those fish mm-hmm. out of there, man. It was mm-hmm. crazy. But mm-hmm. I, I loved That's it wild. when we fished because they'd get Grandma that catfish. We'd bring it home. We'd skin it. Make the catfish, fry it up. It was good. I love, love being out. I I like catching. I don't love fishing. I like catching. That's kind of my favorite yeah, thing out yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people they don't. It's the opposite for a lot of people. I know they don't. You know, you they don't want to catch. Don't just, catch. It's it's just kind of being and chilling and yeah. It's the process of 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 just getting away and doing a very I think what is a very simple yeah. Escape escape thing to do unless you know, you're uh, like for, for a lot of people you know unless you're like out in you know like the ocean you know what i mean yeah. uh out in like the gulf you know because i mean it yeah. could be stressful right you, you could throw your line in and you could catch yeah. i don't know uh uh a, a black mermaid brain. you know what i mean you could catch a black mermaid out <laughs> you there you might mess around here catching a black area you have to turn it <laughs> turn it around like, what turn is it. happening you're not supposed <laughs> to be in back. here wait a minute. first of all <laughs> the woke mob has shown up in the ocean wait a minute <laughs> That's all right. Reach has no bounds. No bounds at all, man. Hey, man, I'm I'm feeling good today. Uh, I'm excited. Stuff's coming up. We've got lots going on. People have been listening to the podcast, been hearing a lot of folks coming through the podcast. Um, You know, getting ready for the Mosaic Conference, uh, Antoine. We've been talking about it. We've got this partnership with Mosaic, and we're partnering with them to do the Mosaic Conference here in Dallas, November 8th through the 10th. And, uh, mm-hmm. and in addition to that, you and I uh, and Threaded get to really help with the virtual conference. Uh, and that's going to be a lot of fun, you know, us hosting. Are you looking forward to that aspect definitely, of the conference? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Looking to host, looking for behind the scene interviews. We're going to get with some of the speakers, yep. hopefully some of the ones that are featured on this show yep. uh, as the lead up. But also interfacing with the audience and bringing them up and into um, into the the show to tell about their experiences yeah. and what they're feeling and 
how they're being inspired mm-hmm. and how their creativity is being um, unleashed That's based right. on uh, what's go based on what they've heard and 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 how they've interacted with people in the conference. So looking forward to it, man. I think it'll be it'll it'll be fun. I think for sure. No, I agree. I think there's lots of really fun things going on. And, and again, if you are interested in, in coming to the conference in person, if you're Dallas or anywhere, right, if you want to come into the conference, make sure when you go get those tickets, you put that threaded coupon code in there, T-H-R-E-A-D-E-D, and that will get you 20% off of your ticket price. You can do that with your group. You can do that for a single ticket if you want to. Uh, and you can go and do that by going to Mosaics, Mosaics with an X, conference.com. You can get that ticket there. So, uh, But if you're going to do the virtual conference, you just do Mosaics Conference, what is it, dot vfairs, V-F-A-I-R-S, Com, and that'll take you over there to get your virtual tickets. Uh, and it's going to be a good time. So I hope you're going to do it. And, and part of the reason I hope they're going to do it is because we have these great speakers like what we have today. We Indeed. Have a, we have a fun, uh, fun guest on, uh, on the show today. He was a former football player. Uh, he is a co-founder and lead pastor at Transformation Church in South Carolina. Uh, he has written uh, a myriad of books, uh, including some great titles, uh, The High Definition Leader, Building Multi-Ethnic Churches in a Multi-Ethnic World, uh, The Good Life, what, teach, what Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness, and I think his most recent book here, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, What the Bible mm. Says and the First Christians Knew About Racial Reconciliation. He's a, a well-sought-after speaker. He's been interviewed Many times on lots of shows, including Good Morning America, he speaks at conferences, and as I said, he's going to be a speaker at the Mosaic Conference. So let's welcome into the studio Dr. Derwin Gray. How are you doing, Derwin? You doing all right in here? Man, I'm doing real good, particularly uh, because y'all are talking about fishing. Oh, (laughs) is that uh, your spot? You like the fishing? Oh, I love the fish. I love the fish. And uh, Marcus, like you were saying, my grandmother, mother actually introduced me to mm. the love of fishing. Okay. And so she passed away back in 05. But uh, when I go and fish, there's always uh, these great nostalgic feelings because mm. it reminds me of being with yeah. her. But also uh, Fridays are my Sabbath. And yeah. so I try to get out and fish on my Sabbath. I catch uh, bass and catfish. And so there's a there's an art and science to it. Yes. And so I, I just love to the various baits and the various test lines and rods and reels. And um, also this past summer, I went to uh, Spain and I actually caught 110 pound. What? Oh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was almost five foot six. And uh, it's 110 wow. pounds. Wow, and, uh, 110 pounds. It take it take a couple of y'all to get that in. I oh know. no, no, you don't know who you're talking to right now. You know, yeah, this <laughs> is this is I'm, 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 you know, I'm I'm stronger <laughs> than the average man. I mean, go. it's 110, but they fighting. That's what I'm saying. They, it yeah, ain't well, that I'm, way. Like they, they this dude, this dude played in the NFL. I'm, you know what I mean? He had to I'm bring down people like Marshall Falk. Like he ain't worried about no <laughs> fish. 110, <laughs> but 110. It be 200. Yeah, man. No, it, it was. Uh, That's funny. It was an incredible battle. If, if you go to my Instagram, which is at Derwin L. Gray, I actually have a video of it, and mm. uh, it was it was it was quite an experience. But 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 you guys know this, right? The early apostles, disciples, were fishermen, Indeed. right? Indeed. And um, when Jesus rose from the dead, and Peter and the boys were out fishing. Uh, Peter recognized Jesus on the shore and jumped in, mm-hmm. you know, he had a, 
he had a Lieutenant Dan moment on like this course. <laughs> That's Pump, right. Lieutenant yeah, Dan. Yeah. Lieutenant <laughs> Dan. <laughs> and Jesus had that fish waiting on him, mm. you know? And so uh, fishing is actually a beautiful metaphor right. for, for the gospel is that we are fishers of people, yeah. white people, black people, Asian people, Latino people. Asian, I mean, everybody, everybody. Yeah. yeah, I love it. You know, and that's one of the things that that's so great about you is you're such an evangelist, you know, uh, and you know, that's what's what what I think is, is hilarious is like, you know, you've got all these accolades, right? Played, you know, football, you've been a successful writer and a speaker. Um, but I think, you know, so many people know you from things like this. Evangelism. Why did I want to be the evangelism linebacker? Well, let me put it to you like this. <laughs> Next time I'm gonna hit you so hard you're gonna go into flight. NASA's gonna think I didn't launch a satellite. You see, as a fish was created to swim in water, as a bird was created to fly, I was created to knock people out who don't evangelize. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. For those of you, yes, I, I wish you could see. I wish you could see the uh, the video of this. But it was funny. We were actually in our staff meeting this morning, and they were like, "Who are you guys interviewing today?" We we're like, "A uh, Durin." Gray and they're like, yeah, I think I heard of him. I said, have y'all ever heard of the evangelism linebacker? But back in the video, so they're like, oh yeah, the evangelism <laughs> linebacker. So I thought it was so hilarious with all that you've done that that's sometimes how people get to know you. Does that happen <laughs> often, Derwin? With you, I, I only have one regret concerning the evangelism linebacker. Okay, is I didn't get royalties. They <laughs> they paid me one thousand oh. dollars. I made up all the lines. What? On the right there and Ooh. it was it, it it went viral before that was a thing oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. definitely I, definitely i just wish i could have got a dime mm. per video mm. you needed all. a better agent you had a sport agent but you needed a, <laughs> not a not an entertainment a, agent you know what i mean you lost out on some yeah. money on that for sure but wow. uh, it, it, well, you know, we're, we're looking at the evangelism linebacker. Obviously, we're talking about you as a football player. Uh, you know, <laughs> your football career started in a way that was really surprising to me. In fact, I was with some guys in Baltimore this week and we were talking about different guests and your name came up. And and uh, there was a guy who had who had gone to the same high school that you went to uh, in San Antonio Judson. And he was there, I think, a little bit after you. But uh, he, he but I, I didn't know this. And he was like, yeah, he, he went to. He went to BYU to play football, and he kept going. I was like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you just say BYU? He's like, yeah. I was like, now, Derwin's a, a black Christian oh, that I know Brigham of. Is, Young. is he, he went to BYU, that, with the, the Mormon school. Like, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, I, I need to know more. So so, so Derwin, like, okay, t- why, why that school and why, and this is the second piece, why is it that I would be very surprised to hear that you went to that school? So why that school? Why? Yeah. And why am I surprised to hear about it? Yeah. So the, the first piece is just really, really easy. Yeah. Uh, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> okay. So coming out of high school, I had one scholarship offer from TCU, one scholarship offer from Kansas. Wait, hold State. up. Just, just a second. Just, just, oh, I got no, it. I've got let, to, let the man no, finish, no, I've got to stop let him the right man here. Finish. You did, you, you went to BYU over TCU, the best <laughs> school, the best school out there. TCU at the time. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Was, was recruiting me heavily in 1988, but they just wasn't very good. Yeah, that's true. That's true. was not very good. Yeah. And, what I knew about going to BYU was this one, I'd get a world-class education. Yep. 
I'd be on ESPN. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to compete against other guys from Texas. <laughs> True. Um, I play for a legendary coach. Mm-hmm. BYU was a couple of years off a of national championship. Um, and I knew I'd play early, right? right. So um, it was it was literally the best school that offered me. Growing up, I wasn't a believer. So, mm. I mean, yeah. if you would have asked me, I would have said, like, I guess I'm a Christian, but I didn't know what that meant. Our family never attended worship. Uh, we didn't pray together. We didn't eat dinner together. And so it was a it was actually a very, very easy choice mm. to go to BYU. Now, secondly, we know historically Brigham Young University is the flagship school of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or mm. what we know as the Mormon Church. And so when I played at BYU, this is 89 to 92, we would average anywhere between nine to 12 black guys on the team. Wow. Now, half the team at BYU is non-white between black and Polynesian. Mm-hmm. All 10, 10 out of the 11 defensive backs in the cornerback room are black, and many of them are not Mormon. And so Kalane Sitake, who's a Tongan head coach, has done a great job of actually diversifying the team. And what a lot of people don't understand is to go to BYU, you have to sign an honor code. Right. And the honor code says, you know, uh, no drinking, uh, no premarital sex, no cheating on tests. And so it's actually a really good moral framework. Mm. Um, And so now you have a lot of kids who are actually Protestants who go to churches Mm. that are around Provo. Over the last 15 years, there's a lot of Protestant Bible-believing churches in Provo. And as a matter of fact, just recently, last week, I actually lectured at BYU all week to the Neil Maxwell Institute, which is a group of Mormon scholars and Mm. Historians. I spoke to the religious education um, faculty uh, and many more groups on campus about my book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. And so I am through and through Protestant, evangelical in the good sense, orthodox in a historical sense. Mm-hmm. And so I have liberty and freedom to communicate historic Christianity in that context. And, 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 and so uh, it's really a blessing that I get to be able to do that. But also uh, for a lot of Latter-day Saints, their theology does not provide an answer for their historical racial issues. Right. Whereas, where, whereas for us as Protestants, Martin Luther was not my apostle. Right. Paul was. Exactly. Calvin was not my apostle. Wesley was not my... So, those men can make statements like Martin Luther was very anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And as you know, historically in America, the racism from the pulpit, whether it's Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, those guys don't speak on behalf of God. Right. We have the New and Old Testament for us. And they were very, very intrigued about my exegesis of the text that got us to the point that Jesus not only forgives sins, but he creates his family with different colored skins. And yeah. as his family loves each other, the world will know that you are my disciples. And by our unity, the world will know that you sent the father. And so uh, I'm grateful 
um, for the open door access. It's really like a Mars Hills moment. Mm. I can go into that space um, and be able to proclaim the truth uh, with grace and love and compassion. Yeah. And I, I love that. Um, you know, I, I, there, there are folks who know and don't know, you know, the, that's the name of the school Brigham Young obviously represents one of their, their prophets and apostles that they had that said that black people ultimately couldn't receive the priesthood, you know what I mean? Kind of get into that celestial kingdom, uh, which was lifted in 1978 year I was born. I just, just made it. Uh, and, uh, the, I know that that was, that's a, a huge part of sort of the historical racial narrative that, uh, follows the LDS mm-hmm. around for sure. And I know I, I, um, I grew up in a, a very strong, uh, LDS area. And so I had lots of friends and lots of communication, lots of engagement with the LDS church still do quite a bit today. I have the elders that come by my house, you know, sometimes like we've, we've had them in for dinner and, uh, or lunch or but sit and talk with them on the porch. And, and honestly, I've started most of my conversations with them from that sort of racial space. Uh, did you ever have to get into any of those kind of conversations? I know you said you, you weren't necessarily a Christian when you, when you went there, how, how much of that did you uh, encounter, uh, as you were there? You know, not really a whole bunch because, frankly, um, I wasn't really – I was at BYU to play football, to get good grades, and hopefully go to the NFL. And then my freshman year, second semester, I met my girlfriend, who's been my wife now for 30 years. And so my focus was not on what they were talking about mm. um, religiously. But if I could pause just for a, a moment because I think this is – is 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 very fair so mormonism is a uniquely american offshoot of historic christianity the the goals the theology is vastly different but racially a lot of things that brigham young was saying other white christians were saying the same thing the difference is Mm -hmm. brigham young rooted his in I'm receiving direct revelation right. like the apostle Paul would be. Right. And so the idea of the curse of Cain was something that was taught within Protestantism right. to create this inferiority. So, so he took a lot of what was taking place at that moment. And so I, I think it's fair to say that his was rooted in, I'm hearing a direct re- revelation from God. Whereas with white slaveholders, it was a misapplication of scripture that mm-hmm. fortified white yeah. supremacy, which is indeed slavery. Yeah. And so when so when I was there, uh, I mean, I had privilege. I mean, I was well known. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were like Mr. and Mrs. BYU, like people loved us. But I know not everybody got treated the way that I did. Right. Mm-hmm. But if. But if we were to take a step back and think about this, the first black football players at Alabama only got on the team in the early 70s because Bear Bryant, the Mm -hmm. Alabama head coach, was smart enough to bring the University of Southern California to Alabama to play the Crimson Tide and their roster was filled with black dudes Mm -hmm. and Sam Bam Cunningham, the running back, crushed them. Mm. And guess what Alabama started doing the next <laughs> yeah. year? Recruiting black guys. Recruiting black players. That's right. So I think it's important that we understand that, yes, Mormonism has a unique history that we have to 
that they have to deal with that mm-hmm. we have to point out, but so does evangelicalism and the culture um, as as well. And that's where I think that, you know, the title of, 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 of my book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, what the Bible says and the first Christians knew. Mm-hmm. I want to take people back to the early first century world where this miracle took place. There was a people raised to new life in the resurrected Christ. And these people were Jews and everybody else. Right. Enemies became friends, foes became family. And this new people, the early church fathers called Christians a third ethnos, a third, a third race, because this race was a redeemed race of the entire human race where the supremacy of Christ ruled and reigned, which meant that we viewed each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with no hierarchy except for Jesus himself. And that's where we have to get back to. And since we're on this topic, that that if we dislodge ethnic reconciliation from the work of King Jesus, i.e. his sinless life, his sacrificial substitutionary atoning death, resurrection and exaltation, sinning of the spirit, then we're going to fall into either progressive leftism or we're going to go to crazy conservatism. And both of those ditches lead nowhere. We've got to go right back to the redemptive work of Christ that what Jesus did was him saying, Father, I'm fulfilling my covenant that you made with Abraham. Just simply Galatians 3, 27, all those who are in Christ have been baptized and clothed in Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, mm-hmm. male nor female, for we're all one in Christ. And then here's verse 29 of Galatians 3. And if you belong to Christ, then you are children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection only makes sense in light of God's promise to Abraham. So what we're doing, talking about multi-ethnic church and ethnic reconciliation and colorful conversations is not in addition to the gospel. It is intrinsic and overflowing out of the gospel. And why isn't this taught in seminary? That's what I want to know. Mm. (laughs) It's the effect of the first cause, right? Yeah. It's going back to the, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's an opportunity um, not knowing that, if you will, as an opportunity to ignore it uh, and to to be able to live in and, and keep a, a bit of our, I would even call it American church identity in some ways, which mm. people are afraid to kind of move away from because they, they are so, uh, we, we are so dug into sort of this Americanized version of uh, Christianity that uh, as we start to be challenged uh, to go away from it in any kind of capacity, it's it's scary. And to your point, uh, a lot of the theologians that kind of have, have moved us and taught us uh, and those that have been trained in the seminary level have not had this kind of teaching. Um, they've been looking at it through a particular lens, and that's a, a theological lens that was put together to support white supremacy. Uh, and now that I think there's there's more people of color coming to the space, being able to bring in their own ethnic hermeneutic in there, uh, I think we're starting to, to actually get um, what I think is the benefit of of multi-ethnic uh, Christian engagement and multi-ethnic Christian church is we're starting to get the the view of the Bible 
from all the different cultures and colors, which as which is the way God intended it to as the full body with all its parts really working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and what I would say, and I know that hermeneutics cannot be 100% objective because right. we're absolutely. So what I like to say is this isn't a Derwin Gray ethnic hermeneutic. I'm just trying to do the work of a New Testament scholar and historian to say, this is what this meant in that time, regardless of my ethnicity, this is what it meant at this time. And this is what it means now in our time. Now, the beauty is the beauty of the body of Christ is we cannot see the fullness of God without the fullness of his people, that his people image forth his glory. And so God's multi-ethnic people, every nation, tribe, and tongue is able to bring a mosaic to create this beautiful picture that we can see more clearly. And I think the hard thing for majority culture people is it's hard for them to see that because they've normalized their way of being. But I think this is important too. When I was over, uh, I was over in Europe, in Greece and Spain, and I met with church planners in, in, in Greece and they had read my book and said, we need your book here in Greece. I said, why? He goes, well, the Greeks don't think they're racist. What they say is we're not racist. We're just better than everybody else. Mm, So they looked down upon the Albanians. The Albanians didn't like the Greeks. And then all these groups, they don't like each other. So so this isn't a uniquely American thing. This is a total depravity, dark, demonic power thing. And the cross of Christ reconciles. This is intrinsic to our spiritual formation, our mission, and our discipleship. Yeah, and I love the this connection, and, and you know, it's always important to to center the conversation or uh, frame the conversation in the understanding that these types of things have happened uh, from the very beginning. They they happen in other parts of the world. Uh, in the midst of the American construct context, which I think is a, an interesting context in itself, uh, we find that uh, the manifestation of Christianity has worked itself out in various sort of segregated, separated ways. Uh, we have, and probably because of sin, historical sin that comes out of a, a white supremacist theology, uh, we find ourselves um, with that end of obviously the work of uh, the evil one. We find ourselves with these churches that represent uh, singular homogenous groups. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of conversation about, you know, the, the validity of uh, homogenous groups and homogenous churches in, in some capacity. Uh, but the church that you lead is a, uh, a very well-known um growing multi-ethnic space. In fact, I think uh, Outreach Magazine at one point said it was the second fastest growing church in, in the country. And, and, and I, I know that as we've watched people who have made switches to a kind of multi-ethnic framework for their church, we've seen the church actually shrink. Uh, but you've got one that is growing. So tell us a little bit about that. As a, you, did, you founded the church as a multi-ethnic yeah. church, is that correct? Yeah, so uh, my wife and I are the co-founders of Transformation Church, and we didn't, like I said, we we didn't grow up in church. Right. And so we couldn't understand why the nightclub was more ethnically representative than Jesus's club. I mean, in in a nightclub, everybody was there. In Jesus's club, it was not. Mm -hmm. And so as we read the New Testament, the Holy Spirit just convicted us that this is 
what the church is supposed to be about. Um, it's to be Jesus-centered, and Jesus not only forgives, but he unifies and evangelism and mission and mercy and kindness and justice. And we we didn't have enough sense to know that we weren't supposed to do that. Right. So we planted Transformation Church, and fundamentally, our church is built upon the great commandment, love God, love your neighbors, you love yourself, and the great commission, go make disciples of all ethnos, all mm -hmm. people groups. Right. So that's not just across the sea, that's across the street. So I didn't know that I had the option to not mm. be multi-ethnic. Right. I thought it was normal, <clears throat> which it is. Yeah. And so we planted Transformation Church and um, God is God has blessed us. We, we don't we don't do the outreach magazine stuff anymore um, because we feel like that's not the best metric of what a healthy church is. Sure. We're thankful for it. We grew like crazy. It's awesome. But it's not just numerical growth, but what it, it's it's this coalescing of all these different people coming together together that the world shouldn't say we should come together. We, we, right. we, have, we have we have Democrats in our church. We have Republicans in our church. We've got country white people in our church. We've got East Coast white people in our church. We got we got people from different countries around the world. We got and as you guys know, black people are not monolithic, right. you know, right. Um, and, and, and so but the centering point is the good news of King Jesus. And the good news of King Jesus is not simply going to heaven when you die. It's the body and bride of Christ being indwelt by Christ himself to take upon his ministry, his mission through his life to embody this kingdom on earth for now and for all eternity until he returns. So it's, it's interwoven into who we are, which means I have to take a timeless truth and speak it in a timely manner in our context. Since mm -hmm. 2015, leading a multi-ethnic church has gotten a lot harder. Sure. Things that I used to say that were easily accepted are now more difficult and it requires more finesse and more explaining because of our cultural moment. Donald Trump did not create our cultural moment what he did was open the door so people who held his views could say, oh, it's not shameful to believe this. Mm -hmm. OK, so we're going to we're going to come out and and discuss these things. So one of the things that I've been doing the last few years is really discipling our people through political idolatry. Yes. And let me be let me let me be very clear. The black church is in lockstep with the Democrat church. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, with, with the Democrats, that is political idolatry, just like evangelicals have political idolatry. Here's my point. I don't care how you vote, but why do you vote the way you vote? And how do you treat your brothers and sisters who don't vote the way you vote? Mm -hmm. I, yeah. think that's, I think that's the real issue. But I also believe that we as the church, there's much more that we can do. So during the pandemic, we opened up a free grocery store. We feed about 500 people per month now. Uh, since the pandemic, we've made 350,000 meals. Um, every month, 9,000 pounds of food goes out of our church. But at the same time, 
you know, we've seen like 400 people come to faith this year. So justice, evangelism and reconciliation, they're not at odds. They don't they don't compete. They complete like the whole Jesus's work was holistic. He not only gave people himself the bread of life, but he gave people bread as well. He mm -hmm. not only went to Jews, but he also took his Jewish boys to Samaria. He not only was with the poor, but he also went to the powerful Nicodemus. And so, you know, having a holistic approach and understanding, but I think that <clears throat> requires us to saturate and soak ourselves more in Jesus's world than we do in our world. Yeah. We're not careful, man. Um, Antoine, like, like we get caught up in what's happening in this moment, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's easy to get. Yeah. It's easy just to lock into the, to be myopic and look at the thing right in front of you and lose sight of the, the grander picture of what God is actually doing. I think that's what, we've been recently talking a lot about first and second Peter. I think that what Peter is trying to get his audience to understand in first and second Peter is this, this very thing, this, uh, uh, this, um, disconnection between, um, focus of what their political situation is rather than what God is doing through them, through that situation. I do have a question for you though. We asked, um, we asked some other folks about the multi-ethnic church and, and the necessity of it. And, I, and as I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you say, hey, like the scriptures, this is what the scriptures laid out. So uh, on some levels, why is this a big deal that anyone's talking about this? This is this is one on one in some senses. But I am. But the question has and does come up how if I'm a church planner uh, right now, it, it should I be uh should I be focused on creating a multi-ethnic church or not? Should every church be multi-ethnic or is there, is there room for homogenous churches in, in, in the American context, uh, American Christian context? What would you say to, to a question like that? Well, what I would, what I would say is this is, is I would say, read the new Testament. Um, after you roll with Jesus, and he says, go make disciples of all nations and then read, read the book of Acts as you see it unfold to become this multi-ethnic church. And then as you read every one of Paul's letters, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles. And then when we get to the book of Revelation, we see this incredible picture of every nation, tribe and tongue that has been purchased by God to be a kingdom of priests on the earth. So from the beginning to end, we see this multi-ethnic family. So what I'm going to say here is rather strong, but I believe the evidence supports it, that we don't have an option to not reach what our community looks like. And if we mm -hmm. find ourselves in a homogeneous community, then we need to make sure that we're connecting with brothers and sisters who are different. But ethnic reconciliation is intrinsic to the gospel. When you read the entire library of Paul's books can be summarized with, with this. How do Jews and Gentiles through the redemptive work of Jesus become the new people of God to join God on mission for the glory of God? And all of our discipleship and all of our being should fit into that story. Now, listen, let's 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 say if if 
if you're in an all black context, then your church is going to be pretty much all black. But make sure you're building bridges across your ethnic divide. If not, we're going to become myopic. The same thing for the white church. Now, I do believe that there has to be space for a first generation immigrant church where they're learning the language. But the second generation has become Americanized. And so it's important that the first gen is leading into what does it look like for the second gen to connect in the broader context. But um, if God made a promise with Abraham to give him a family of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and Jesus fulfilled that promise, and Paul works that out through the gospel, as well as Peter and John and everybody else, then that's that's what we're called to. So um, Antoine, I think we get to that problem because we've deduced the gospel to what I get out of it. Yeah. 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 The benefit statement. Uh-huh. Yeah. We we, uh, we teach we it like in, in the space that I teach, I call it the B, the BS theology is the is the uh, benefit statement the theology where everything is about what we get out of it. When in reality, um, it's 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 so often the opposite of that. Well, it, it is. I mean, what? Why would Paul spend so much time with language like us and our and we? Why are we called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the, the ecclesia of the church? All of those are corporate things, even our mm-hmm. in Christness, for he chose us, us. Mm-hmm. in him before the foundations of the world. That Jesus, Luke 9, 35, Jesus is the chosen one. He was chosen before eternity to bring about redemption and we participate corporately in him as his body. And and so, yes, there are benefits that that we get. We're God's workmanship. We're righteous. We're reconciled. We're new creation. That's so that I can be a good brother in this family called the church. Yeah. Yeah. I think so often people get the, what you said was, you know, you want to look like your neighborhood. And so I think what happens, the warning or the caution here is that it may, let's just say it's an all black neighborhood. You get an all black neighborhood and therefore now you have an all black church, but you, and, but suddenly the identity sticker moves from Christ to the chief characteristic of this community. Now this is who we are instead of we being Christ. So now when something other than us show up to the room, well, that's not, we, we don't have room for that because that's not who we are. And I think the caution for us is to look at our, to match our community, but to hold it so lightly, to hold that sense of, of community makeup so lightly that God can move and enter into it and bring people into it as he wills, whether they look like the current identity chief characteristic of that, uh, of that group um, or not, uh, whether it's a black church that suddenly now the neighborhood is more Hispanic or or more uh or more asian that now all of a sudden now you've got to learn how to look like your neighborhood again well you've got to release the identity of being a black church to still being a church of christ that might minister to the neighborhood i think that little shift is hard for people i think we get we get together we kind of write unwritten rules about what our group is socially and 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 we lock people out based on based on that, and it, without yeah. intention, it just sort of happens. Well, and, it, it does. And 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 uh, since since my mind is here, I just want to piggyback on what he's saying. In Philippians, Paul says in Philippians two three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain yeah. conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. Do nothing 
look only not only for your own interest, but for the interests of others. Verse five of Philippians two, have the mind of Christ. And it goes mm-hmm. into this kenosis that when we are sacrificially serving each other in goodwill through the Holy Spirit's power, that's where the transformation can take place. But here's the reality, though. Here's the reality, and we have to be honest about it. Historically, the African-American church has tried to do that, and it hasn't worked out too well with our white brothers and sisters. And so it's important that our white brothers and sisters see us truly as family and advocate on our behalf. Like the white moderate can no longer sit silent and watch. This has to be a joint communal effort. When I went to Washington, D.C., I met with both sides of the political aisle to talk about immigration reform. Well, most of the immigrants that are coming are Latino. Well, I'm not Latino, am I? Mm -mm. No, I'm African-American. But before I'm African-American, I'm a Christian. And the Bible tells me to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So my advocation is going to be for human beings. And here's what's ironic. For years, the white church has been told, hey, go make disciples. Like, we'll go across the sea. Well, the, 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 the people across the sea have come to America. Right. Mm-hmm. They want to get in. And what we've done with immigration is we've turned it into a political football. I've Man, I was so discouraged listening to these politicians. It was not what's best for America. It was how does my party win? And Mm -hmm. you people made in the image of God, overwhelmingly many of whom are believers. They're either Catholic or many of them are Pentecostal from Latin America. Mm -hmm. And when you go to England, what's keeping the English Anglican church alive is Nigerian Anglican immigrants. Mm. Wow. Well, look, and we, we've got this conversation going, and, and I'm with you. I mean, I think that there's – I want to give that – this conversation, I've had it many times, and I, there's, a, there's a, a, a constant that comes out of it uh, that will come from, say, the black church, right? Um, the recognition, there's kind of this beef with the multi-ethnic church movement that it seems to be um, black people or people of color coming to white church Right. And ultimately being assimilated uh, into a quote unquote white culture. Uh, and what what you know, I was having this conversation just the other day, actually, with a, a, a close friend. Uh, and he would say, you know, the, the black church has always been and you were articulating this a little bit. The black church has always been a, a had a mindset of a kind of multi ethnic thought process this openness that everyone could come because they understood what it was like to not be accepted uh, in a predominantly white space. And so what they say is, why don't they come to us? You know what I mean? Why is it always us going to them? Uh, what would you say to, to that as, as, a, as a pastor of a multi-ethnic church and obviously a black pastor of a multi-ethnic church? I would say, amen. Um, I would say historically, traditionally, for our white brothers and sisters becoming a multi-ethnic church meant Black people or Latino people or Asian people coming into a white space to add their color. And I say this respectfully. So hear my heart. In those types of spaces, it's not really multi-ethnic. You've got some colors and those people are like paintings on the wall that you can point to and go, Mm -hmm. see, we're we're we are diverse. Yeah. 
um, a lot of minorities are leaving those spaces because assimilation is not the same as accommodation. Assimilation is you can leave your color and you, you can leave your culture at the door. We just want your color. So what I'm proposing is more of a robust biblical understanding that. So I'm African-American. My wife is white, but we don't neither one of us grew up in church. And so we don't have a black church background, white church background. We just want to be a community that reflects the image of Christ through us. And unbelievers don't have a white church black background or, 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 or a black church background. The people who I have the most struggle with convincing of multi-ethnic church is Christians. Mm, yeah. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Yeah. None none Christians love it. They think it's the greatest thing ever. Right, right. It's because their their whole world is like that. They're usually living in that world. Everything else is that way. Yeah. 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 Walmart looks like that. (laughs) Yeah. And so we have to um, really disciple the Christians because the non Christians get get that. But what I will say though is I think the black church is right. And unfortunately, I'm rare as a black pastor that our church is probably 55% white. Like black pastors are blown away. Like, Oh my, I cannot believe that white people follow you. And that has to change. Do you think that has something to do with you having a a white wife? Does that help at all? You know what? Um, I think it helps, but what I think helps more Mm. is I played in the NFL. (laughs) True. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I thought you were about to ask. I guess. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. So, um, people that typically hate on our church without knowing us will say, "Well, it's because his wife is white." Mm. Um, And and so, you know, that certainly helps in God's providence. Mm. But I I think what helps get people in the door, man, this guy played in the NFL. What keeps them in the door is they see that I'm a shepherd, that I love them, um, that I exegete the scriptures, I have a high Christology a beautiful vision of God's grace. And so I think that's what keeps people being a part of it. So there's this safeness. So I view my role and my legacy is I'm opening the door for the next generation to be multi-ethnic church pastors, but also something that I, that I do as well is there will, is there will be times where I'll talk to the white men and I'll say, you know what? I bet it's hard being being you. You know, you're white. Um, you have a conservative, orthodox belief in the Bible, man. You get blamed for everything: global warming, extinction of the dinosaurs, all. And you know, and it's and it's like this humor. But I'm their pastor too. Yep. That's my brother as well. And if you wrongly come against my brother, you're coming against me. Whether if you're white, Asian, Latino, and that means for the entire family of God. Will I get taken advantage of from time to time? Yes, but I would rather be taken advantage of loving than not. You know, it's, it's ironic, uh, you know, as you're talking about, about that and, and, and people coming into your church and, uh, I think it is, I think it's so fun. (laughs) And I think you're hitting it right on the head is that you, you and your wife don't have a church background that kind of, that kind of weighs you down to feel like you have to kind of honor that sort of tradition, if you will. You're, you're not trying to, 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 to reinvent something that you have nostalgia for. Uh, you're just mm-hmm. trying to go in there and go, no, I, this, this is actually what's happening. Uh, and I, I'm, I imagine you get some flack for that too. Is that, is that true? It, you know what? Um, not, 
not a whole bunch. That's great. You know, um, not you know every every once in a while I'll I'll get a troll on social sure. media that I'll mute, or people will uh, you know every once in a while people will like I'm leaving a church I shouldn't feel guilty for being white and you know we try to sit down with them like why are you guilty for being white Well, you talk about the the past histories of America I'm like well hold on a minute did Jesus die for you or America because I'm just as American as you are. Mm-hmm. So that's called nationalism, bro. Like Jesus died for you, not America. And the same people who say, um, well, let's don't talk about history. They love history. Yeah. Just their parts of history. Sure. And as believers, we should be able to look back at history and say history informs our today. History is how we got to today. It doesn't mean that we're blaming our white brothers and sisters for what happened 100 years ago. Now, they benefited from that, but it's not about blaming them for for that. I mean, can you imagine going to the doctor and he sees spots on your lungs and says, hey, I think this is lung cancer. Have you ever smoked? And you go, well, my past has no bearing on what's happening right now. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we keep running laps in the desert is because we don't look back to say, how did we get to this point? So think about this. After the civil rights took place, and Dr. King writes about this, all types of unqualified racist people began to run for political office. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Um, All types of incredible pushback begin to take place. But in the civil rights, think about what took place. For me personally, I think the civil rights movement needs to be considered a part of um, a revival. And here's why. It was a black church movement. Mm -hmm. And these young people had to read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in order to have nonviolent protests. Right. Can you imagine? Now, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but I'm serious too. All right. So when you look at January 6, 2021, white people stormed the seat of democracy, the US Capitol. Can you imagine if they had gone through what black Americans have gone through? What would have happened? Mm-hmm. But yet, you had these young black pe- 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 people and some Christians and some Jews, but Dr. King and their movement formed them with the Beatitudes, right? So, so out of the civil rights, I believe there was a revival, but then also on the West Coast, you got the Jesus people and you had all types of new movements happening. And I think that's happening now. So I'm hopeful. I believe that the future leaders of the church aren't even saved yet. Mm. That that they're going to come to faith, but it's not going to be because of a Democratic Jesus or a Republican Jesus. It's going to be because they're going to see Jesus and his kingdom and the gospel of grace that deals with not only evangelism, but justice. That deals with not only reconciliation, but life in the womb. That deals with not only life in the womb, but life going all the way to the tomb, right? And, and so one of, the, one of the things that I've been saying, not only to my church, but when I've been going to speak is this, how would you live your faith if Republican and Democratic political parties didn't exist? And then I say, by the way, 
that's the way historically Christians have lived their faith. And that's how most Christians around the world live their faith now. Right. That Republican and Democratic policies are new kids on the block. They are not ordained by God. And you can just see the light bulbs because most people, when you talk to them about life in the womb, oh, you're a conservative. When you talk about gun control, oh, you're a liberal. When you talk about it, it's like, no, 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 no. Don't put that on me. Uh -uh. I am a follower of Jesus with a robust and holistic ethic for life rooted in his kingdom. And it's going to push against man-made systems of government. That's right. That's right. Look, we're going to wrap up here, but I, uh, just with a couple of things, but uh, I love this, this notion of, you know, the next leaders of the church aren't even Christians yet. You know what I mean? Um, we were with, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Emerson a couple of days ago, and, and he talked about this idea of people that we're going to need to see a conversion of Christians to Christianity. Uh, and I thought that was really a powerful sort of space having, you know, coupling it with what you're talking about, sort of the new converts, coming and helping Christians actually convert to a real Christianity that's not tied down with all of these, uh, again, kinds of traditions and idolatries, right? And that's a, an example of kind of uh, what you and your wife are, are emulating in the in the midst of this church, which is which is why it's growing so so fast. Uh, and look, we, we've got the Mosaic Conference, which I'm excited that you're going to be a part of and come uh, be there. I think you're, uh, I think, I can't remember, I think we got you on Tuesday and then you've got like a, yeah. a, 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 a breakout as well. And um, what do you uh, just, you don't have to give us, but give us a little teaser. What are you, what are you going to be talking about? What should we expect? Yeah, You know, I've been, uh, since, uh, Mark Demas, whom I greatly respect asked me, um, what I'm going to talk about is how to endure in the gospel. Mm-hmm. It just seems so hard. How do you, how do you have endurance to continue because it's been so hard on so many levels. Like it's hard enough to lead a church as it is. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the political stuff. Mm-hmm. You got taking arrows. You got just a normal past. Then you have a pandemic, people not coming back. Like, how do you have enough endurance? And you know, bottom line is this is God gives you enough grace for the race. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. But we're looking forward to that. I think, uh, you got to make sure you come by and, and say what's up to us when you when you're there. Yeah, For sure. We'll, we'll probably come find you and do it. We'll be out there uh, doing the virtual conference. And uh, I think the, the Mosaic Conference is such a great space for you to have that kind of conversation of enduring through the gospel, particularly uh, as you're maybe experiencing uh, differently than some other folks who are doing the multi-ethnic church. But there is a lot of uh, a lot of pushback, particularly those who are trying to transition their churches uh, away from a homogenous standpoint into multi-ethnic and this enduring through that kind of work, but enduring with the gospel that, that we have been talking about today, which is a gospel that's not just about a vertical reconciliation, but a horizontal reconciliation amongst men and women as well. And, and particularly across ethnic backgrounds and cultures. And so I'm excited that you're here, Derwin. Thank you so much for joining us on colored commentary. Uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, in a, a few weeks at the, uh, at the conference. All right, brothers, y'all be good and go fishing. <laughs> I'll do it. Yes, this has been Dr. Derwin Gray. And as we talked about, we uh, said that there is a conference coming up, the Mosaic Conference. And if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, go to mosaics with an X conference.com. Get your ticket. Go ahead and put your threaded uh, coupon in there so you can get 20% discount. And again, if you have, um, 
not uh, if you are not going to be able to go to the conference, then make sure that you go to the virtual conference and check that out as well. Well, this is Colored Commentary, and uh, I just want to thank Antoine, as always, for being here. And, of course, uh, Dr. Duran Gray, we're grateful to have him here, and all of you, uh, always, for listening to us. Colored Commentary, we hope, is a place that you come to learn about all these different lenses through which you can find uh, ways to enjoy the, the world that God has created uh, and meant for us to see through the different lenses, the different colorful lenses, which is why, of course, we tell you every time that you need to stay colored. You have been listening to Colored Commentary, powered by Threaded, a biblical reconciliation organization. To find out more about Threaded, check out wearethreaded.org. And to join the show for live recordings and other events, subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out at coloredcommentary.com.